0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keene, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joe Quinlan with us, Bank of America and U.S. Uh, A trust. Joe, um, the basic idea here, correct me if I'm wrong, is Google and Facebook crush Yahoo. Can you set up a portfolio where you own number one and number two, you own Hertz and you own Avis in every sector that you're in? I
1: mean, you, you could, Tom, but I'd be very careful in that because you have to overlay. If you're going to do automobiles, you have to overlay some Japanese companies, German companies, same with capital goods. Um, you have to start sprinkling in when it comes to technology some of the Chinese Internet stocks because they're doing pretty well uh, in terms of capability. So you can do that, but, uh, you know, you're looking large cap. You might you know buying more value than growth. If you want the growth, you've got to go small and mid-cap.
2: Well, the other thing, too, is if you're buying those companies, you're talking about the biggest companies, so you're not mm. going to necessarily get much return because of the law of large numbers. I mean, their their share prices aren't going to move dramatically.
1: Not not dramatically, but um, and you could also, you know, I mean, Microsoft. I mean, they're they're back, but there was a time when they they were they were quite the laggard for relative to the rest of the industry. So that, that that could happen again at some point.
2: It, it, you just made me think though, um, because if you if if you're buying those companies, you're probably not going to lose a lot of money. You're not going to gain a lot of money. It's a little bit like investing in defensive stocks in the tech sector. Are there any dividend paying stocks that are worth having just for their the, the dividend appreciation at least you're getting something out of it because we always talk about dividends okay you're going to buy an industry you're going to buy a utility but is there anything in tech like that?
1: Not really. Mike, I mean, I, I mean, if you're if you're looking for dividend, you're looking for income, you know, stay traditionally. Whether it's the pharmaceuticals, the capital goods, the industrials, the transports, but you know, technology, you want you want more growth. You, that's your that's your bent in that sense. Doesn't mean you can't get it once in a while. One off dividend payers, um, but you know, if you're looking for income, no, you got to play safer. I,
0: I, I'm looking here at the press release, which is is almost a parody of uh, MBA speak. From good people, Mr. Armstrong, who, folks, full disclosure, I consider to be the transaction of a few years back, the Verizon AOL transaction. Armstrong looked like a genius. And of course, Ms. Mayer with comments as well, Lowell McAdam of Verizon is well, but the word that permeates this discussion is scale. Help our listeners worldwide, the sophisticated CFA types and people that maybe have never heard that word. What is scale? And why do we care?
1: You, you need scale, Tom. To, you know, to drive the demand, drive the top line growth, help reduce the cost, pull in from different uh, comp- competencies. So you know, any company that has scale—not just in the United States, but globally—has that competitive advantage when it comes to reaching new consumers, driving organic growth, and leveraging lowering your then costs. Then,
0: how does that work in what I'm going to collegially call a triopoly of Google, Facebook? And what's it going to be? Uh, Mike Verho? <laughs> we, we <laughs>
2: know, yeah, yeah, they, they're going to change their name, but they don't tell us to what. Let's <clears> hope. <throat> you know, there's some talk that Mondelez might become available if they change <laughs> their name. <laughs> I, I'm not, you know,
1: Tom. I'm, I'm not sure how they all that all works out in that sense. But you know, you're seeing a lot of the technology companies kind of you know, step into e- each other's space, and I think that's what's becoming more interesting. Is Apple uh, a healthcare company? Is Google going to be a car company? Um, you know, re- it's very interesting. It's very disruptive, and it's going to be interesting. Oh, the old line players, if they're still here, we're going to
0: drag Clay Christensen into this. I mean, <laughs> yeah. my word. If I look at right now, Mike, just to help everybody here with Yahoo's. First of all, it's a tiny company. Can we remind ourselves yeah. that they only are like $5 billion or maybe $4 billion of revenue? So basically, they sold this dog at, you know, one point whatever times revenue. I stand corrected if I'm wrong. They do under a billion in EBITDA, folks. That's when you go down the income statement and you bring over a little bit of a balance sheet adjustment. Their net income, Mike, is like, you know, the income of the New York Rangers.
2: Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, in— it, that's not the reason for the deal, obviously. Uh, I'm just uh, wondering, Joe. Do you think it? Basically, what Verizon is getting is the ad platform. You know, the the, the metrics, uh, the patents, the way mm-hmm. they can sell advertising. Uh, does that add enough to Verizon? I mean, I, I assume it's such a small deal that you've, well, it's a rounding yeah. error for them in terms of their cash. But, but well, Mike, I'm not sure. I haven't looked at
1: the numbers. I don't follow the industry or, or the company. But it does. You know, companies are paying for that that, that sliver of, or, of a core competency that they don't have. Rather than developing it, you can buy it if you, if it's the price is right. It sounds. I don't know the, where the pricing is, but that's what they're doing. They're buying a specific core competency that fits into their portfolio.
2: Yeah, I mean, four point eight three billion. Um, it's
1: not a lot of well, money well like you said i mean days, it's yeah. one of
2: the smaller deals of the year yeah, yeah. but uh, but if they get the advertising maybe that helps now and they're um, paying cash and they're paying cash yeah uh, the the interesting thing then is that they leave behind the alibaba estimate uh, the alibaba part and that I mean, maybe you want to own that company as as opposed to Verizon at this point.
1: I, I think, you know, Alibaba is, I think, one of those up-and-coming. Well, no, no, they're not upcoming. They've already arrived. Chinese Internet stock that's going global. They, they have a very good global presence that's building out. Reminds me of some of these Chinese stocks now that when in Japan to 1960s and 70s where they started small, they got some traction, then became big players later on.
2: At this point, do you have any idea what would— Happened to a Marissa Meyer or is it too early to speculate? I have no idea. Um, I mean, as I understand it, Tom, there was some report she's going to get a $57 million golden parachute. So I guess she's not going to be in any hurry to come back to work.
0: I I said, you know, I I said to Alex Sherman 20 minutes ago with a chart of Yahoo. look where the price of the stock was when she walked in the door and look where the price is now. And I just don't get it. I mean, the job of a CEO is to create shareholder value. Was it ugly along the way? Yes, but not that ugly. I mean, I'm, you know, she created, I, I don't know if she earned these large pay packages that people are talking about, but but the fact is a lot was created. A, a lot of value was created.
2: Are we looking, Joe, at... Uh at M&A as any kind of significant driver for what you want to invest in right now? I mean, obviously, this deal captures everybody's attention, but as we mentioned, it's a small one. Are are you looking to M&A? Where is it in in the spectrum of things you're looking at these days?
1: Mike, one, one area is energy uh, in the sense that we've got some companies that are pretty going belly up, up yeah, belly up, distressed yeah. assets we're looking for companies to stronger companies to kind of buy some distressed assets at very cheap prices and it adds to their portfolio and future earnings uh so that, that's number one maybe in the capital goods sector as well you know you, the larger companies buying that one core competency so th- those two in particular some maybe some mergers acquisition transportation um, you know, whether it's the airlines, trucking. So what we're looking for, like, companies that have the cash, need the co- that specific core company that helps drive their earnings. But energy, number one.
2: We went through a period where uh, everybody was looking at m as a way to try to make money. And it does seem to have kind of faded a little
1: bit. Yeah, I mean, it makes money for the financiers and the lawyers in that sense. Uh, you know, when it comes to, like, the ultimate results, well, that takes time. So you know, in some cases, no. In some cases, yes. And But, you know, it is a time factor.
0: What we try to do here, folks, is slice through the BS within the message, and there's a little bit of that that out there. I, again, Michael McKee, go back to the idea of the train wreck that she inherited, and it was years and years. You used to sit there in awe. I mean, 22 years, 24 years old, uh, uh, maybe, uh, when the two guys at Stanford invented this thing, and it was gangbusters for a while, and then you'd sit in awe, absolute uh awe. Here's a, how they 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 turned it. They they blew it up.
2: Here's a for what it's worth headline. Um, there, it's just a few words, but it says Yahoo, Meyer plans to stay. What she's going to do, I don't know. Part of that company she doesn't have to run anymore, so maybe she'll run this investment house that they're um, uh, talking about with the the remainder, <laughs> uh, which is basically the the uh, Alibaba shares and the. Uh, patents, the non-core patents, they say, um, the stuff that doesn't uh, run the advertising that they had to sell to Verizon. Yeah. Let, let's ask Joe this. Quinlan um, from U.S. Trust. Uh, I, is there anything to buy in housing these days? Uh, it, it's it's been mixed, and all of a sudden now it's getting better.
1: It's getting better. I mean, you know, the, the tradi- housing, I think, of like Lowe's and Home Depot, you know, the t- traditional. I, I think, you know, we're, we're looking at good housings. I mean, look where the interest rates cost capital, millennials. I do think millennials are going to, like, buy homes at some point. Here in the United States, it's a relatively young population. We create over 1 million new households every year. So, but it's, it, it, I think it's kind of steady as you go. I, I kind of like more the like kind of the Home Depot's and Lowe's in that space.
2: Yeah, so fix up the house yeah. rather than...
1: Yeah, I mean, and, that, and that's, that's, that's a trade that's been out there for some time, but you know, that, I think that's the space you want to be in. And you know, the appliance makers are doing better, the carpets, but yeah, you know, I think it continues. I you know, I get a lot of pushback. You know, we're old, aging, we're not buying homes. That, that's not true. This is a young population, a lot of household formation.
0: Where, where, what are you avoiding right now? I mean, it's it's an odd market. Yeah,
1: it's it's. I mean, avoiding obviously. I mean, you know, ironically, time, you know, utilities, telecom. I mean, I know we like the dividend payers, and we got to get paid while we wait, but you know, they're just too expensive. We can find better dividend paying stocks and. and <clears throat> Capital goods, transportation, and other places. Mike,
0: I'm trying to get up here. The dividend for Verizon, um, 4.03% with a next-to-no growth rate, and the stock is enjoying 45 to 56. So just this year, you've picked up $11 of share price off 45, captured a Snapola divi- uh, dividend with no prospects of dividend growth.
2: I wonder if what we're seeing with Verizon stock, Joe, is is what we've seen maybe with some other stocks like this. People are betting on the possibilities of the internet and and these things as opposed to certainly actual revenues. Well, I, I think
1: so, Michael, but at the same time, maybe they're looking at their bills that they get, too, from the cable companies, and, and, and you know, they think, like, wow, I'm paying that much, and it's this cost for this service, and it might be falling to the bottom line. So it, it's a little bit of both, but, you know, the, the earnings backdrop is going to have to be pretty supportive mm-hmm. to create maintain those dividends.
0: Now joining us, Scott Galloway, Executive Vice President and critique of Yahoo at New York University. Scott, good morning. Good
3: morning, Tom. Thanks for having me.
0: You know, you've been way out front on this in what I would call respectful and constructive criticism. We just heard from Tim Armstrong and Marty Walden as they rationalize this transaction. Our basic theme with our Alex Sherman is why is Verizon doing this? What's the desperation behind this transaction?
3: Tom, I think this is a good thing. I think this is peace with honor for a great company that's gone from thirteen percent of all digital marketing in two thousand and nine to three and a half percent. But as digital marketing continues to grow, and there's a duopoly, Verizon sees a hundred million asset, a hundred million handset, handsets, excuse me. Uh, they see a great leader in Tim Armstrong. They see a market that's growing, and they see a company they can pick up for about five billion bucks. I, I usually don't like most acquisitions. I, I like this one. I think it's a good idea. I think it's. I think this is good for Yahoo employees. I think it's good for Verizon. I think it's good for the ecosystem. Good for the planet.
2: Does Verizon keep all of what there is of Yahoo now? I mean, they they clearly want the advertising algorithms. Do they want all the content and the search functions and that sort of stuff?
3: I doubt it. I think they will put more management discipline on the company than has previously been applied. Uh, You know, the whole... People would probably say that Disease that's afflicted Yahoo over the last ten years was was dancing in too many parties. And Verizon is an incredibly well-run company. Tim Armstrong has ended up being kind of the most talented ma- uh, managerial ex-Googler. My guess is that they're gonna they're gonna streamline this thing and focus on you know b video, some of the programmatic media, and the fact that Yahoo still gets a billion people I mean, the population of Europe. The U.S. and Latin America show up to a Yahoo site every year. Uh, 225 million email subscribers. Yahoo Finance is a fantastic product. So I think they'll pair some stuff, but there's there's a lot of assets here.
2: This is uh, Verizon. This is a $228 billion company. This is a rounding error for them in terms of I mean, this is the change in the yeah. couch uh, for them to pay for this. So we've talked a lot about what it will do for, for Yahoo. What, what does it end up mattering you know how much does it end up mattering to verizon in the long run well if you look
3: at what's growing in digital marketing or in general where's the growth in all of media and advertising it's it's really two words it's it's we're talking about mobile and we're talking about digital marketing and verizon with aol and now yahoo has those assets and is now technically a viable competitor to facebook and yahoo who have Excuse me, Facebook and Google, who have 15%, 40% share, and now with the acquisition, Verizon has 5%, and it's no longer, it's no longer a duopoly. There is a third player here with some heft and you know some assets. So I think Verizon gets, as you said, for not an incredibly dilutive acquisition, an opportunity to go toe to toe with two players in an ecosystem that's growing, and they have some outstanding assets. We're staring at our phone screen now more than any other screen, yeah. and Verizon knows where you are, has the handsets, and now has some great assets and some great leadership to take a run at the duopoly. I, I, think, it's, I think it's a good strategy.
2: Let me, uh, let me just point out quickly, Tom, that uh, when Yahoo hit its peak market cap of $125 billion in, at the start of 2000, Verizon didn't exist. Still Bell Atlantic, wow. six months later, you know, uh, they bought GTE and formed Verizon.
0: Scott, you know, I, I I look at this, and I think, again, your perspective has been uh, really, really wonderful. I'm looking at ad blocking, just as, you know, to use a Clay Christensen phrase, the ultimate dis- disruptive force. Do you have a legitimate confidence that a no-name, Verizon, Yahoo, Verahu, whatever it's going to be, can compete with Facebook and far more can compete with Google? I just don't buy it for a minute. I mean, I get it's a triopoly, but they are – I mean, this is not Hertz and Avis. They are massively a third-round player.
3: Yeah, it's a fair point, Tom. They are RC Cola, Coke, and Pepsi, right? So. Ad blocking. You know, I, I generally believe that in, in general, advertising has become a tax that poor people pay. To your yeah. point, wealthy, yeah. technologically literate people are opting out of advertising. But there are some assets here that people do want. People do like Yahoo content. Verizon does have your a screen in a hundred million people's pockets. Uh, we call it privacy uh, invasion. Millennials call it relevance. As long as you can serve them ads that are relevant to them. And with these assets, specifically, geo-targeting, 100 million phones, right. and some really good Yahoo content and AOL content, no. they have a they have a fighting chance here, Tom. And personally, I have a bias towards this deal because I think when two players are getting 90 cents on every dollar of incremental digital spend Facebook fair. and Google, it's good to see a third no. player. So I'm hoping this works. It's also good news for the Yahoo employees. Yahoo has continued to get great people and they've had very poor leadership, and they're about to get great leadership. So I think it's a good thing for the, for the employees of Yahoo who have been through, you know, been through heck and back.
0: Now, now Tim Armstrong, to his great credit, mentioned SGA and the dreaded synergy. What will be the synergy? What's your experience on the synergy path of someone like Yahoo?
3: Synergy? You mean in terms of 9,400
0: 9, 9, bodies? How many go out the door?
3: Well, I know one that's going to leave, <laughs> but uh, I, I don't. Uh, you got to think. Let me put it this way: you got to think. It, there's going to be fewer. Uh, the, most of the strategies proposed by the by the private equity guys was what I call a slash and burn and a recognition this was a mature company and it could it could probably. I saw one deck of an, a potential acquirer saying. That you could take this company down to 2,000 people and hold on to 60 to 80 percent of the revenues. So I don't know the exact number, but I'm comfortable saying it's going to be less.
0: Scott, thank you so much. We greatly value uh, your perspective on technology, and media, and particularly uh, your good work over the <coughs> excuse me recent number of months on Yahoo. This day, where Verizon will take out Yahoo. Know, Scott Galloway is at New York University. We make a hard right, a Segui over to technical analysis with one of our most popular guests, Louise Yamada, Louise Yamada, uh, technical research. Louise, the hallmark of Yamada chart analysis is a long term X axis. You love to look at long charts. If you take a bull market back to 1998, can you confirm we're still in a bull market?
4: Well, we certainly have uh, tried to follow what we're seeing in terms of any changes that take place. We had been pretty much uh, concerned about a bear market, and we saw 20 percent down on so many areas. Um, But over the past couple of months, some of the patterns started to turn up and suggest that maybe the market could go higher. And we have seen uh, breakouts through these year-plus consolidations. Now we could call them rather than tops. Um, And we have to acknowledge that there's an extension here to the bull market. Yeah.
0: There is technical improvement. And, folks, this is going to be a little bit geeky. Charts on radio are sport. And the way I would do this, Louise, is to use a word that you and I use, which is distribution, which is the back and forth within a pattern. What does the distribution tell you now about all those blue chip stocks all of us love to own right now?
4: Well, the distribution pattern uh, took place from late 2014 to 2015, and as we moved into the end of the first quarter of 2016, we started to see an evaporation of some of that distribution and more a pattern of accumulation. There, For the New York Stock Exchange in particular, you've seen the distribution pattern, and then you started to see the beginnings of what looked like a potential reverse head and shoulder bottom, which means that you've had accumulation coming into place uh, over the past month.
0: Can you be comfortable in the market now? People that don't do charts are dying to know from Louise Yamada. Can they have comfort in holding things that have been good for them over the last, well, five years back to the bull market?
4: Oh sure, I think that if something is continued up and there are uh, quite a few stocks that barely recognized the period of distribution and continued to go higher without a blip Uh, but I think that one of the rules of thumb is always to have a move up a mental stop loss uh, to protect your profits and uh, recognize it and respect it if the pattern reverses and that stop loss is uh, taken out You
0: are a wonderful pure technician Can you see Janet Yellen in your charts?
4: (laughs) I wish we could. I think maybe the only one that uh, suggests something might be coming is the two-year note, which uh, broke the uh, uptrend uh, very briefly and has bounced back up above it. We had another breach of the uptrend a little bit earlier, but you have an uptrend that's in place for the two-year note. The 10-year has been a little bit more disappointing, but the two-year might be suggesting here that there could be something coming down the line.
0: Well, what would you like to suggest that would be? We need to get you in trouble in we need to- the economic world today. What would that be?
4: <laughs> well, I, I'm inclined to think that we should be uh, raising once again. Uh, but that's my personal opinion. We like your and maybe per- that's right. what the two years saying.
0: We like your personal opinion. Luis Yamada with us, folks. Luis Yamada, technical research. I've already had emails. Yes, we will speak to Ms. Yamada about oil and gold as well, particularly oil, which is – the word I use, folks, when it's a technical jumble is soup. And there's a lot of soupy charts out there not giving me much You learned training. that in CFA. That's CFA level yeah. four. You, you get that soup. Louise Yamada with us on charts. David Rosenberg coming up here in a bit. That's good as well. Rosenberg after Yamada. That's a very cool thing. Louise, oil. To me, it is massive soup. It's massively indeterminate. Can you make a directional call on oil?
4: Well, over the past year, um, more and more, the development of a potential reverse head and shoulders bottom. So we've been looking here for the potential for a pullback toward 4240 to complete a right shoulder. Uh if forty doesn't hold then all bets are off and perhaps the formation is aborted. But at the moment I think that we're looking at the possibility for a, a bit more of a pullback for the price. If it holds forty and starts turning up then perhaps the uh <coughs> consolidation will continue in a breakout through fifty. Yeah would suggest higher prices. But if 40 doesn't hold, then maybe you're going to have to go back and test the low at the moment. We're constructive.
2: The the low was in the high 20s. Do do we go that far if we break through 40?
4: Um, It's a possibility. It's a possibility. We're not looking for 40 to break. You've got a strong 200-day moving average right there at 40. Um, It could slip just a little bit lower. but. At the moment, we're following this potential constructive pattern. We'll see how it forms.
0: Mike, we had a potential constructive pattern this weekend. One of the children actually did the dishes. <laughs> <go>. that, that's <laughs> I what potential constructive. Louise,
2: I'm curious. Uh, we, we've been talking to a, a lot of strategists lately and asking them, in this world where everything seems to be breaking down and models seem to be uh, breaking down, you know, uh, do your models work? How do you? How do you figure out the value of something? And almost all of them say it's really hard. And I'm wondering if it has affected the charts in the same way, that uh, we seem to have uh, gone into a different kind of environment, maybe a secular change in something. Uh, has, has the same thing happened f- for you when you're looking at the charts?
4: Well, since we follow price, we just uh, take what what is given to us and adjust our opinions accordingly. But I think that there is certainly a once-in-a-lifetime or century problem in the fact that we've got so much with negative interest rates. I'm I'm not comfortable with that at all, and I think it's shifting the way people think. And we've been suggesting, and I did a little editorial last month, suggesting whether the stock market isn't where we're experiencing inflation with these breakouts. Um, and it's not being factored into the inflation quotient, so to speak. And uh, we're seeing um, the utilities and the telecoms and the consumer staples doing well, breaking out, giving us monthly momentum buy signals. And you've got to ask the question, are we looking at something with them that's offensive rather than defensive this time because of the uh, unique situation?
2: What is it like trying to figure out uh, what's going on in in, in a Fed world, central bank world, put it that way, where nobody quite knows what the central banks are going to do. So that influence isn't as easy to figure out. I mean, it used to be the Fed would tell you what they were going to do and did it. Now they tell you what they're going to do, and then they don't do it.
4: Mm, Well, I don't think we have a chart for the Fed, unfortunately.
2: But in terms of the, the influence of interest rates on stock prices...
4: Oh, I think that because the interest rates are so low and even negative, you're probably getting foreign money coming in, too, as a safety safety factor here. And that's possibly right. behind what's happening with gold.
0: Louise, what do you do with overpriced blue-chip stocks? We all know the story. Dividend growth, an 18-multiple, became a 25-multiple. They're either rich, 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 get out of the way, they're going to go down or there, you hold them because they're growing their dividend and there's nothing else to buy. What do the charts of, you know, you can name the companies rather than me, those name-brand dividend-growing blue chips, what does Luis Yamada do with them?
4: We have to follow what the price is giving us. And as you mentioned, I think you mentioned Colgate before, breakout through a, you know, a, a extended consolidation. You keep going with it and raising your stop-loss. Uh, that's the only advice we can give for the individual investors is to uh, protect your capital, keep moving it up until the story isn't there anymore.
0: Louise Jamada, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it.
2: David Rosenberg is chief economist and chief strategist at Bleskin Chef. He joins us now. We don't have any numbers to talk about, but we do have a Fed meeting to talk about, David. And the numbers that we have seen in recent weeks have started to come in better than forecast. The surprise indexes are all higher. Does the Fed get through this meeting without suggesting maybe we raise rates sooner rather than later?
5: Well, you know, I think we have to put it in the perspective. The data has certainly come in um, above expected, but the expectations uh, were pretty low to begin with. So, you know, look, when you take a look at the Atlanta Fed um, model, it's pointing to 2.4% growth after, call it around 1% in the first quarter. So uh, we're still averaging out um, very tepid growth rates uh, as far as I'm concerned. I think that, uh, you know, the the last uh, Fed meeting, was a week before Brexit. Uh, there was heightened uh, global political concerns. Uh, markets were certainly a lot more jittery than uh, than, they, than they are now with the uh, major averages you know, testing uh, their uh, their all-time highs. I think that the one sentence that comes out of the statement is, of course, the one that talked about job growth uh, diminishing, um, especially after the last non-farm payroll report. Um, the consensus seems to be that the Fed's going to tip its hat toward signaling um a rate hike you know as early as september uh i'm not so sure about that but you know if you're going to ask me do i think that this particular statement will be more upbeat uh on a macro basis and certainly in terms of what financial conditions have done benchmarked against what we had in mid-june um you know that i'm full square with but um the, the fed i think the core uh, Fed policymakers signaling that uh, they've got an itchy finger right now, uh, I'm not so sure. And if they do, I think it'll be, uh, it'll be caveated with uh, so many uh, other items that have to happen that I don't think that it's going to really spin the dial that much uh, in terms of Fed futures contracts or the bond market in terms of where it's priced right now.
2: Well, you think they, maybe they just kind of want to give themselves optionality and not have the markets pricing in a first quarter 2017 move? They're not going to say the word
5: September in their statement no uh but they can always find uh, some sort of language my my sense is that um you know is it is it the tail uh or is it um uh you know uh or is it the the head of the dog here in terms of chasing what uh you know everybody talks about that the fed now has to become uh, less dovish or more hawkish but the reality is that a good part of uh what the markets have done as partly because uh you know the fed after pledging apparently to raise rates four times this year at the beginning of the year um has uh you know has, has gone back on that and the market appropriately have taken out those uh, those tightenings. So you can't have it both ways. If the market, for whatever reason, starts to price in, uh, the Fed's going to raise rates. And, of course, it's just rhetoric right now by some Wall Street economists and strategists. Uh, the futures have priced in more of it, but, but certainly nowhere close to
4: yeah.
5: um, better than 50-50 on a move this year. But if the market starts to price in the Fed, what happens next? Uh, the U.S. dollar uh, starts to strengthen. And uh, if you remember, go back to the beginning of the year, um, that was one of the factors that uh, was undermining the outlook for corporate earnings. It was causing the i s m uh, to retreat and so my sense is that um you know the the economy is certainly. Uh, doing better uh, than it was. It's still not doing great. And I think the big surprise actually is where inflation is going to end up in the next several months. Yeah,
0: that's right where I wanted to go, David. I thought you have been brilliant on this. And, of course, the famous Rosenberg line, inflation is just a forecast, not a reality. And then you go over to an idea of reflation. If, if we don't have inflation and we're worried about importing into our country disinflation and deflation, is it possible for any government to truly reflate their economy?
5: Well, uh, there is certainly room to uh, reflate uh, you know, through fiscal policy, uh, which hasn't been done really in, outside of, say, China Uh, I guess you could also say Japan, Japan's running a fiscal deficit of 7.5% of GDP, Um, but you know when you have a a debt to GDP of 250%, you you get to what's called Bacardian equivalence where the additional fiscal stimulus just gets saved and doesn't get spent. Um, Lots of talk obviously among the uh, two candidates in the U.S. um, as to how far fiscal policy will get stimulated next year, but again, that's next year's story and who knows how much stimulus we end up getting uh, through the House no matter who wins so you know my sense is this just looking at the data you know here we've had um you know uh oil prices double off the lows and the headline inflation rate is one percent i mean seriously is that is that all you get from oil prices doubling from the lows and what's happening now is you're getting the vigorous response um, in terms of multiple unit construction uh rental rates are starting to peak out vacancy rates in the apartment sector starting to uh, bottom out and hook higher, and the whole inflation mm-hmm. story in the past year has only been – really, it's been imputed rent uh, and actual rent in the CPI data, which is, what, 40% of the index. You strip out the rental part of this inflation story, and uh, the CPI is running negative 0.2 on a year-over-year basis. Yeah. Um, I think that becomes a lot more apparent um, in the next several months. And, right. uh, you know, so people will be talking about, well, the Fed may or right. may really not have reached its unemployment goal. But meanwhile, you know, inflation is <clears throat> going to start to recede right. again.
0: Uh, David Rosenberg with us. And I really urge you folks to hear our podcast with Yakum Fells of PIMCO as well, who's like Mr. Rosenberg, speaks of shadow rates, which are way below. Uh, way below where the actual visible inflation rate uh, is. Um, David, you are the ultimate just the facts economist. What facts have you learned about negative interest rates?
5: Well, I think what we learned about negative interest rates is that uh, ultimately all they end up doing is uh, putting a tax uh, on the banks. And if you're ultimately wanting to generate a healthy economy, uh, I think you need to have a healthy banking sector. So uh, I'm uh, actually happy that this is not a policy that's been transmitted to North America, nor do I think it will be. Uh, and so far, uh, I don't see any evidence that um, it's done uh, anything to uh, recreate uh, confidence or economic acceleration um, you know, within the uh, uh, broader European uh, economy, especially uh, the Eurozone. So to me, it's a uh, – uh, if you're going to stimulate policy, again, I'd rather that uh, we moved away from strictly monetary towards some fiscal response that ultimately will lie with Germany, which actually is running budgetary surpluses right now. Uh, But negative interest rates right now, to me, is a flawed uh, flawed monetary policy. Uh,
2: The Fed doesn't like it. It's extremely unlikely that they would ever adopt it. But is it possible that the markets could push negative interest rates upon us?
5: Well, I'm not so sure that it's uh, something that the markets are pushing. Uh, you know, the, the, one of the reasons why I suppose that uh, you haven't r- moved to a situation here in the U.S. or Canada where rates have gone negative is because um, you know central banks here are no longer in the QE game. Uh, you have a situation where the uh, two parts of the world that have negative uh, yields uh, are the two areas of the world, uh, Japan and, uh, say, the euro area, where the central banks there are still aggressively involved in quantitative easing, in fact, to a point where you know the ECB is so aggressive now in the corporate bond market that you have, in some cases, short-term corporate credit trading at a negative yield. Uh, so uh, if you're going to convince me that um, things are going to get so bad in the U.S. Uh, that the Fed is going to re-embark on quantitative easing, take out more duration of safety out of the marketplace at a time when you have ongoing captive demand for fixed income out of insurance companies and pension funds. Um, yeah, I suppose you can get to that situation where the markets push you, but it's not going to just be, uh, it's not be a demand issue. It's going to be that the central bank uh, here follows what they're doing abroad uh, in taking so much fixed income product out of the marketplace. Um, and, you know, I, I don't exactly have a, a very bullish prognosis for the U.S. economy, but I don't exactly believe that things are going to get that bad that the Fed's going to have to reenact quantitative easing to that
2: extent. Well, I'm just wondering if, uh, you know, the kind of buying pressure from overseas that we have seen keeps the pressure on. And you've got a call from the folks at Citigroup that we get to a 1% rate in, in, on the 10-year by the first quarter of next year.
5: Well, that's, uh, you know, again, I, I wouldn't rule that out entirely. Uh, you know, we did we did something I wasn't even anticipating. Uh, I thought that the lows in the 10-year yield were put in in July 2012 when we got to around 140. And of course, we broke through that a few weeks ago. So I think we're in a new and lower range on the 10-year no yield. Uh, and, uh, you know, if we do get to 1%, which again, I wouldn't rule out, it's not my base case, but uh, it would take, I think, uh, more than what you're talking about right now. It would take more than just uh, the pull of lower. Or global bond yields, it would take a relapse in the u s economy to get to those sorts of levels. Take a look at what it took to get to um, one hundred and forty it, to it took one forty It took a recessionary scare from a very poor uh, May payroll number and, and of course uh, the geopolitical risk coming right out of the brexit so you 'd have to have uh, really a combination of things go awry to get yields all the way down to one percent. Um, you know, that said, uh one percent uh isn't uh isn't negative. And look, you go back to that whole period for about a decade, uh, in the early forties to the early fifties, uh, you know, the Fed uh pegged um the uh the long bond deals at that point for a decade um at uh, at two and a half percent. Um, you know, if the Fed ever wanted to uh abandon, say its policy of targeting its balance sheet, which is what it was doing under QE, the targeting long-term rates, it could easily do that as well. But uh, let's just call it for what it is. If interest rates were really um, uh, the panacea for accelerating economic growth, well, I mean, you've had that in Japan now for a quarter century. Where's the acceleration? Um, You've had uh, um, unbelievably uh, easy monetary conditions in the Eurozone. Where's the acceleration in economic growth, or for that matter, in the United States? So uh, we have to really think about something else, which is, going to be through either regulatory policy uh, or through tax and spending policy. To me, the answer really lies in fiscal policy. So we can talk yeah. here theoretically and academically about negative interest rates, but the proof is in the pudding. Uh, the European economy right. is still not going anywhere despite um, uh, <clears throat> just unprecedented right. monetary relief. So the, the answer is going to lie with fiscal policy.
0: David, you you synthesize economics and equities. We've got a number of people that do that. Joe Quinlan on earlier does much the same thing. Are you comfortable owning dividend growing big US companies uh
5: well i think that that theme is going to remain intact you know until uh until bond yields uh, uh rise on a uh on a sustained basis. So look, we have an unusual situation now where it's not just where the dividend yield of the S&P is above uh, the 10-year note, it's above the long bond yield. I don't know of a time that it's happened before. I think the utility stocks uh, are way overpriced and uh, you could argue that maybe staples telecom to a lesser extent. Um, But yeah, I mean, if we're talking about uh, uh, areas of the stock market that generate uh, stable Cash flows. Well, that's what the baby boomers want. That's not going to go away. We, you know, we have one and a half million people that are going to be turning the age of 70 for the next 15 years. Uh, they're going to. Uh, they have a 50/50 chance of making it uh, to 85 or 90, and they're going to need to have an income flow that the bond market doesn't provide. So, yeah, the answer is in the stock market. It doesn't mean you got to be in utilities. Um, you know, you could be uh, in regional banks. Uh, you could be uh, in the REITs. Uh, you could be in the MLPs. Uh, there are vast areas of the market beyond just the traditional safe areas like utilities mm-hmm. that you can spin off a of cash flow. Even some tech names that didn't even have a dividend policy 15 years ago were paying out yields of 2.5% uh, of to 3.5%. Uh, so the answer is yes. I think the dividend theme doesn't mean you have to stay in one sector right. for 12 or 24 <clears throat> months, but that the dividend income now, theme in the equity market is going to be a pervasive one for some time to come.
0: David, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. It's fascinating to talk to uh, Mr. Rosenberg, Michael, about the parsing of price change. To, to review, inflation we all yeah. get. Disinflation is not down Disinflation is less inflation. Deflation is priced down. And honest to God, Michael, reflation is essentially undefined. There isn't really a formal description of what societies end up needing to do. Yeah. Which is interesting. There's a few other things, odd things like that. Yeah. But after all these years, you still got to walk through inflation, disinflation deflation reflation how do you define stagflation
2: no stagflation is uh, with the, the the economy not growing very fast and inflation rising yeah. and, my answer is a recession
0: without wild. the nber involved yeah. just one opinion <laughs> thanks for listening to the bloomberg surveillance podcast subscribe and listen to interviews on itunes soundcloud or whichever podcast platform you prefer I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.